Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. ...can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who fights a never-ending battle for truth? The great Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, how'd you get to work today? I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. I drove. Oh, you drove. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> See, I biked. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you want to just stomp around and leave a heavy carbon footprint, that's up to you. But I just <laughs> like to... I just, I just couldn't sit back and be a part of destroying the Earth anymore. Well... Good for you. Oh, thanks. I like to be more part of the problem. Wait, yeah, no. Par- more part of the solution <laughs> than part of well, the you problem. Know, you know, like the small dent I might make in in reducing the amount of man-made emissions is uh, completely outweighed by the douchebaggy nature of that my character would become and i i'm really like a virtue theorist <laughs> yeah so no i know i feel that I, I i posted about that on facebook that i've been biking to work a lot and i just felt that like self-satisfied douchey feeling like creeping <laughs> over me and i had and i had to like actively resist it I, I had to i had to fight it but it was like it was like invasion of the body snatchers like i think i lost in the end <laughs> i think it I took know. over me you, it's it was a case of smug, but, but all this is just a way of saying that I am a moral hero for, <laughs> for biking for, to school for very many other reasons. Yeah. Like mainly, and it's pretty much just you, for this. Actually, <laughs> well, I was going to say that the fact that you fail to act on your impulses all the time. My impulses, on the other hand, as a virtue theorist, are all good. So sometimes I have to. You're the loving saint. I'm the loving saint. I get ha- pure happiness out of uh, other people's happiness. I'm. Uh, well, yes. Yeah, so our topic for today is moral sainthood and moral heroism more broadly. We'll be talking about that in a sec. There's been a lot of press. Like every blog I followed has linked to this study that shows that utilitarians, according to this study, according to an, a write-up about it in The Atlantic, are more likely – well, no, sorry – they're more likely to be drunks, or, or more precisely, drunks are more likely to be <laughs> right. utilitarian. Most drunks are utilitarian. Most utilitarians probably aren't drunks. Now, you might think, okay, but I'm not a utilitarian. <laughs> so how does that <laughs> fit into your study? The, but it really, you know, it, they're not saying that this is law of nature. It's just drunks tend to be utilitarian. Right. And, and so... It, 
Okay, so I've read the abstract and the press coverage. The reason I want to talk about this is that I don't know these researchers, and they're certainly doing work that is sort of consistent with with a lot of work that's done. So one of the things that they were trying to tease apart is whether utilitarian responses to these moral dilemmas are caused by increased deliberation, like Josh Green has argued. And so they take this sort of the, the fact that drunks are act are responding more utilitarian in a more utilitarian fashion is evidence that it's not an increase in deliberative reasoning. So it's it's supposed <laughs> to undermine some of the dual process theory right. work where the rational side of you is being utilitarian, but the impulsive emotional side is 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 non consequentialist. And it's right. supposed to I think it takes itself to be as evidence that undermines that view. Yes. This study captures so many things that I hate about the way that moral psychology is, is headed. Yeah. Or has this been really headed. is like this in one study just captures where <sighs> social psychology has gone off the rails. I, no pun yeah. intended. It's falling off the bridge. Um, <laughs> it, it's gotten fat within six um, <laughs> So you're right. Some of these are problems with moral psychology and some of these are problems with in general social psychology. So for one, the, the big the big problem for me is that, you know, uh, it has become a common indicator of utilitarianism or deontological reasoning to measure people's responses to sacrificial moral dilemmas like the the trolley problems and all of the versions and well as i've argued with with dan bartels for instance these are not capturing utilitarianism like for instance (laughs) like are these people more likely to donate to oxfam i doubt that drunk people are trying to maximize the good of others there is so many reasons to like be suspicious of calling this a true indicator of utilitarianism uh, right it's what it is is you are more willing if a if somebody asks you would you push a a fat guy off a bridge to save five other people you're more likely to say yes you can't generalize beyond that it doesn't say anything other than just that that when some stranger approaches you in a bar and gives you the the footbridge dilemma you're more likely to give the judgment that you should push the fat man that's all that's all it does it's all that's all it does it's just like such a little thin thin little piece of what a utilitarian actually believes and in many cases utilitarians like our dear friend walter Sinner armstrong would would uh, would reject he would find some utilitarian uh, justification for not pushing people so the other thing is you know when you when you grant that this is only measuring exactly what it's asking then like it's obvious that drunk people would be more likely to 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 report this it's kind of funny like right. I'm drunk, I'll, if I'm drunk and I'm taking a survey and they're like, would you push a fat guy to save five people? Yeah, like I'd be like, yeah. Like, that's, yeah. That's or just just would not, you push a fat guy off the bridge? That's period. what they didn't do, right? That's right. what they, they but, <laughs> and, and now somebody else will do that and, it'll, and that will undermine evidence from a study that should not have been done in the first place. I think we should do that. No, because this is how the this is how the whole thing gets. It's a train we need, wreck. We need to get the H indexes up there, man. The, <laughs> by any means necessary. So the other thing yeah, is, yeah, I get um, rewarded a lot for a higher, <laughs> higher or lower H index. Right. The other thing <laughs> is that showing that that an external influence, say, um, like uh, some sort of situational variable in this case, alcohol intoxication, changes a response 
does not necessarily provide positive evidence for why those responses are made under normal conditions. To give an extreme example, like so, so social psychologists like to, if they want to get, they want to try to get at the underlying mechanism. So I want to know why you make poor judgments about money. So they create a situation in which you can change people's judgments. And sometimes it's actually a really, so to, to use sort of a, a, a reductio, I, if I put a gun to your head, I can change your responses. That doesn't mean that the reason that you were acting is because of failure of gun to the head, right? It's like, it's essentially the same fallacy as assuming that headaches are caused by lack of aspirin, because when you give aspirin, it goes away. So making people drunk and showing that they're more utilitarian and responding, there is very little to conclude that therefore there some features of drunkenness are what are making normal people like the 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 failure to reason deliberatively or whatever right is is what's actually guiding people on who are not drunk and that's just a problem in general like social psychology just because you can turn something on and off doesn't mean that that is how it works but there's so many you can just stop after this doesn't show that they're utilitarians (laughs) what would show that they're utilitarians is if they really believed that the sum total of happiness is the most important thing, and they were committed to actually acting in a way as to bring about that. Right. This, I mean, you made this point a while back because sometimes what they do this for is right the like wiping your toilet with an American flag or a Brazilian right. flag or whatever. <laughs> uh, you're a utilitarian. You think that's okay? Uh, <laughs> so ridiculous. And and like the thing is, you know, so. Confusing a measure for the thing you're measuring is, is you know, something that's common, except for usually people put a little more effort in making a measure that actually captures those things that are – so like IQ tests, right? Right. They're trying to tap into intelligence. There's so much work in getting different domains of, of cognition that are being assessed by this – by these tests and refining them. And there's – it seems like – you know, people who are doing these moral psychology studies have not given too much thought to what it means to be utilitarian. You don't even have to ask them the principled questions, but just ask them like, you know, do you think it's wrong to, you know, pay $10 a month for HBO when those $10 could save an African kid? Do those drunk people think that this is true more than sober people? Like, I seriously doubt it. How how about the money you spent on beer tonight to get drunk could have been used to, you know, to clothe an orphan who is, like, shivering? (laughs) I will say in the French author's defense. Yes. It's important to emphasize that these researchers are French. Le drunk (laughs) utilitarien. That's That's a pretty name. Utilitarian for a girl. (laughs) Next. Utilitarian. (laughs) Utilitarian. And then the second one. Consequentialist. I told you not to bring that kid. Deontologia. Oh, this, right, is so, bad. So this is bad horrible. material right we're now. Just, this is really just, <laughs> you might have we're, to we're reaching. Okay, so uh, I will say in their defense that Jen and I went to an auction for my daughter's school. It was like the it's like a yearly thing that the PTA runs to raise money. 
and and you know you buy a bunch of services and stuff like that that people in the community donate. Jen and I, the food wasn't really good at this place, but the drinks were really good. So both Jen and I were pretty wasted. So, so at the end of the night, and they're so smart about this, they put the silent auction. Raise money for this, 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 and you have to keep, like, who will offer $100? Who will offer $150? Who will offer two? And, and Jen and I just at one point, like, we... We like for for a sum that there's no way we could afford, and was like exceeded practically like what we give to charity. Like at the end of the year, we both raised our hand for that. We said, "Let's do it." Yeah, let's do it. And uh, and so we did it. And then we woke up the next morning. And we're like, "Fuck! Did we just no? Wait. So yeah, maybe we were more utilitarian." Maybe, although I suspect that like the same error would be made just for purchasing something like on Amazon. At least that's what I <laughs> and has been made. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, and speaking like, of that, for those of you who get drunk and go on Amazon binges, <laughs> try to remember, try to <laughs> to go to the Very Bad Wizard support page first, and then make your drunken, imprudent purchases. <laughs> that's right, and that that will be. It's akin to donating to starving people. You will be the a moral hero and a moral saint. If you're a utilitarian, all you have you're improving the amount of happiness that in the we world. have. Like so you're maybe you'll take a little hit, but <laughs> totally worth it for No, you won't that. take a hit though because you Oh yeah, because you're buying as you're as buying normal. it anyway. That's right. It really is like mill approved. This is our, our Amazon link. <laughs> um yeah. You know what actually makes me buy stuff? Ambien. And then, like, in the morning, I won't remember at all. I got, like, some wallet. But here's... here's <laughs> that must uh, be exciting. You just come to your mailbox. There's just a... Yeah. It's like a present. Totally. But usually, like, when I realize it, it's totally consistent with what, what I really wanted to do. As the, yeah. as the, they say in Latin, in ambient veritas. <laughs> yeah. Your true self is the self true, on ambient. True self. That's my like jo- me. My we inner have, Josh yeah. Nob comes out. <laughs> I start calling people haters. It's true. All right. We're going to get a lot of haters if we keep this conversation going. So let's take a break. And then when we come back, we'll talk about moral heroes and moral saints. Give it to me. back to Very Bad Wizards. Dave, I just poured myself a beer, so this discussion is <laughs> about to take a much more utilitarian turn. <laughs> You're gonna, are you yeah. going to stop eating meat? So today the topic is 
moral heroism. And I, we had this idea because we did a episode last week on moral anti antiheroes and moral villains. So it seemed natural to pair it up with the moral heroism episode. When we posted on Facebook that we were going to do this, I think one commentator assumed that we were also going to do a movie episode and i got an email from one of my friends who's a listener who also suggested uh, some movie heroes and i was just trying to think it's not a movie episode we're not doing that like um, as much as i'd like to do movie episodes every single time uh, but <laughs> two, uh, two in a row would just violate all my principles <laughs> it would violate yeah dave dave has a code, code is never to do two movie episodes in a row. Honor, honorable but even, but actually, I, I wouldn't. I don't think I'd want to make this a movie episode because it's very hard to think. I mean, can you think off the top of your head of really good moral heroes in movies that are great movies? This is a problem, and this is we'll get to to Susan Wolf's article on moral saints. But the problem is that usually people who do good things in movies that would get them classified as having done something heroic are flawed in movies. Right. Because, That's what's interesting about them. Is yeah. That they're because or else they would be of, dull. Right? Yeah. This is why Superman, for instance, in the comic books is really difficult to write. You know, Superman is a character where it's like, you know, he just doesn't do bad things in order to make him interesting at all. Like villains play off of his commitment to morality. Like his morality is his weakness. Right. right, like just plus like kryptonite, gross. right, and kryptonite, right, uh, and but so like to get away from Superman, you you don't even need kryptonite. You just need to throw someone off of like a bridge and right. then flee because he's going to feel compelled to save them. Right, to, not, yeah, you can blow up Los Angeles, but if he's promised to uh, save a mother in Alberta somewhere, exactly, eh. Bat Batman wouldn't give a fuck. Yeah, I don't care about that woman. I don't care about your mother. I gotta save the city. <laughs> Fuck that woman. <laughs> we should do a whole Batman voice. <laughs> I mean, I can't think like unless it's like a movie about someone in real life. But even, you know, movies based on real people, they rarely show a true moral. Well, I guess so the, the, the there's a distinction here between kind of moral. a moral hero. And there was a movie about her on HBO Who? that was Temple Grandin. Oh, yeah. But but what's interesting <laughs> about her is that. Also she still that, kills animals. I mean, just because... No, she doesn't kill animals. She just makes animals who are going to die suffer a lot less. I realize I mean, for, for you Kantians that it's meaningless how much animals <laughs> suffer. I'm, saying, I'm just saying that, like, when somebody has that much empathy for animals, I, I think that the natural thing would be to, like, campaign against killing them. <laughs> Not, no, like, to well, come up maybe with, like, that's better... the natural thing to do, but it's much more valuable for animals who are going to die anyway to die in a much less painful manner and scary <laughs> I, I mean and i know manner. but if, if you're really opposed to animals dying for the sake of food or something it's like saying like you know criminals should have better aim because like if they do a belly shot like that's just cruel let's train criminals to shoot straight <laughs> for the brain so you like develop a training program for like gangbangers. Well, first of all, I, I can't believe you're even saying what you're saying. Like, first of all, she, I, I, we don't even know that she's against killing animals for food. <laughs> she's against making animals suffer um, when they don't need to <laughs> suffer. And so if, if you need 
pure consistency and like some sort of systematic moral defense of what she's doing. Just you can just think that that's her principle. Prevent I, unnecessary suffering to animals, not don't kill animals. Maybe. Maybe. But you're not going to let her off Temple Grandin. <laughs> my point, my point yes. was more that I think what makes her compelling in part is her autism. Well, that's right. not a character flaw. It's, it's like a in, hook. It's interesting. It's, it's a hook. It's, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because in some ways it seems, you know, sort of like just the kind of example that is counter stereotypical. You know, she really does care that much. I mean, she cares about animals. Um, and she can communicate so clearly in writing. Um, She's a fascinating yeah. figure. We should have her on the podcast, and then, <laughs> but you have to promise to be nice to her. She'll she'll see that you're suffering and just just like zap you um, uh, painlessly. <laughs> Am I the only one who's been uh, pouring myself a beer? Because you uh, are. I'm just drinking water. I just yeah. actually didn't sleep last night, so it might, I might as uh, well be drunk. It shows. Yeah, you should try Ambien. <laughs> I just in the previous segment, I just told you about how like I take Ambien. So I, I will. I okay. was referring to that. Oh, uh, you were making a joke. <clears throat> See, this is what lack of sleep does. I, uh, listeners, if you want to send, uh, can you send Ambien through PayPal? <laughs> okay, can. but back to the back to the topic. I want to. We read two papers for this topic one is what's her name kraus sharon kraus sharon kraus it's on sort of american honor the sort of the notion of honor as giving rise to to morally to good virtues actions. that lead to to morally heroic uh, right. actions so we read and, a chapter from her book liberalism with honor called um, honor and democratic reform and it looks at five figures who we would consider to be moral heroes um abraham lincoln frederick douglas elizabeth Cady stanton and susan b anthony and martin luther king and more broadly some of the leaders of the civil rights movement and, and i think the argument of that chapter is that certain virtues that are prevalent in individuals who are devoted to acquiring honor are present across all of these cases. And, right. and it's a way of linking up honor and moral heroism. Or, right. And one, one of the things that, that um, is very different from the, the other paper we read was Susan Wolf's, uh, Susan Wolf on Moral Saints, is the distinction here between, so, so Krauss, on, on her view, having honor doesn't mean that you're perfect. By it definition, is, almost. It's, right. She says there's a quote in the chapter, honor is never pure. Honor can be linked with many virtues, but it's never pure. Right. And so she actually points out that a lot of times when honor is motivating moral heroism, it's it's mixed in the person with ambition and, you know, sort of desire for power. And desire but, for esteem of others and... Right. Want, yeah, exactly. Wanting to wanting to be liked and respected and followed. And these are actually traits that often lead to horrible things. But you don't you don't need a conception uh, of sort of purity in all motivation in the way that some other conceptions of a moral saint would. So a moral hero, somebody who consistently does things that are extraordinarily valuable to other human beings does not need to have 
perfection in their other domain in the other domains of life and I, you know she doesn't raise this and and maybe because it's it doesn't support the point that she's making necessarily but martin luther king was a philander like he was <laughs> right like no but was, i i think it does i mean it's perfectly it consistent with her point it, it that, could be but yeah but i was looking for her to mention it as sort of a, a way to deal with this problem like it may very well be that the thing like the desire to be liked for instance or right that same to... that desire can lead you to do immoral things now right. remember her topic is not moral heroism but no. major democratic reform progressive reform that has occurred in our country and the figures who were most responsible for making that happen she's just dealing with what motivates people to do these morally heroic acts and it's perfectly consistent in fact she mentions it with the exception of Frederick Douglass, she mentions for pretty much all of these people that they had their private vices too, sometimes as a result of honor seeking and sometimes just a result of various other parts of human nature that cast us in a negative light. But they were able to perform these consistently morally heroic acts in part because of their honor values. This is where I start to have problems with the kind of argument that she's making um but maybe it helps to say what she means by honor like so again she she really believes that the people who are who are making sort of these big big dents in history in favor of sort of reform and justice and equal rights but one of the problems that i had i and this is only in reading a chapter not the whole book but um is that that there are so many different things that she mentions as being features of honor that I started getting confused as to what she even meant by honor, other than those things that moral heroes have. Right. And I know no, this I, is a conceptual analysis problem. But. No, no, no. I, but, but, but the worry is that she is begging the question, I guess. If she defines honor as those things that moral heroes do, then, of course, moral heroes will be motivated by honor. Right. Uh, but I think she defines it more by, first of all, a desire for the esteem of others, a deep sense of self-respect, a willingness, so the courage to risk your well-being uh, in order to claim your self-respect or your dignity when it's being denied to you in some way. I think uh, this is maybe a more controversial aspect of honor, but a, a deep reverence for a partic- for, for some set of principles. Right, so, she appre- so she attributes to Lincoln. One of the things that motivated him was that he had this reverence for the principle of the, dec- the dec- Declaration of Independence, yeah, that uh, equal rights, that everybody has an equal opportunity, uh, not just white people, but that applies to all human beings. That was something that, that really motivated him, is reverence for that principle. And Krauss actually defines somebody who is acting honorably as the opposite of a coward. So the the willingness that somebody like Martin Luther King, for instance, you know, when, when she quotes him as saying like, I, I know that I might die, but like, I can't stop, like, I can't stop doing this. Like it's sort of a willingness to die for you. Willingness to die, conquering that fear that might actually, you know, make you or, or me stop in our tracks. Like, well, it ain't worth dying for. (laughs) Well, especially you with your crazy fear of death. Oh, well, you know, okay. So, so here's actually 
something that was bugging me as I was reading this. And it's about you. Because this conception of honor is inflexible and in some ways consistent in a way that you are constantly mocking. You almost fetishize honor. And honor has this component of people who are stubbornly adhering to principles no matter what the cost. The second thing is that for all the shit you gave me about that fucking politician, all these arguments about how I was judging him because of the reasons for his action when all I should be doing is just praising him for having actually changed. Well, you don't have to pray. You bend over backwards to praise him, but you don't have you don't have to take this as another opportunity to prove no, your but, moral superiority no, to the rest of the world on Facebook. But you, That's all I want. <laughs> But uh, I didn't post about it on Facebook. You and your but you were, <laughs> yeah. But you were saying quite forcefully that uh, everybody arrives at their moral positions through mostly moral luck. But yeah. you really seem to value people who are motivated by honor. Right. And it seems like a, a but I mean, virtue but of... that's not inconsistent because they could it could be a matter of luck that they are. But you want to praise them. I you don't have a problem praise praising them. people, even if the thing I'm praising for is ultimately comes down to luck. Do you think you only praise your daughter for things that uh, she's ultimately responsible for? Uh, no, in some but deep sense? no, no, but I, I I've never made that argument. Like you were the one making but it. I, so. what, no, I was making the argument that just you know that that we all come. It's all kind of a matter of moral luck when we come to our morally plausible views or or having morally reprehensible views. And so when somebody comes to a to a view that you agree with and celebrate, don't get mad at him because it took him so long or because he came no, but, about it in the wrong way he didn't but, think but that this, this is the, like following the categorical imperative but <laughs> that was never my argument the fact that you are in this domain keeping the the actions and the consequences of the actions constant that you find it praiseworthy whether or not it is ultimately in their control or not to act out of honor and not out of cowardice and to act yeah, out of... Right? That's right. Yeah. And so this is what I was... This is the argument we're, that I was making, that to come in support of... By the way, Yoel just was rip, ripping me for my view on on the... <laughs> we had a meeting and it was like 20 minutes of him telling me how stupid I was to like condemn this guy. Um, really? Yoel? Yeah, Good yeah. for him. Yeah, fuck him. You gotta have him back cahoots. on the podcast. <laughs> I love him. Yeah, we do. Uh, so I am praising the person who arrived through some process that I find morally valuable to a moral attitude. You are praising somebody who arrives at some attitude or action through the process that you find to be morally valuable. You would find somebody who uh, emancipated the slaves because he was you know, his life was threatened and he had to do it as less moral and less praiseworthy. Yeah, although again, the take-home message for me about what she's saying is not how praiseworthy they are, but No, just no, this is not a criticism what... of her. It's a criticism of you. No, I know it is. Okay. But and you're right. I admire I my favorite part of this chapter is the discussion of Frederick Douglass. He the the description of him 
being a, uh, a slave and working for this guy, Covey, who is known for beating his slaves. He took a beating. And he, at one point, he just said, you know what? I'm not doing it again. I'll follow orders. But if he ever tries to beat me right. again, I'll fight back. He just decided he would rather die than be this guy's whipping boy then she says that that after that covey didn't lay a hand on douglas during the six months that he was still in his service and douglas described the event as the turning point in my life as a slave it rekindled in my breast the smoldering embers of liberty and revised a sense of my god damn it why can't i read (laughs) and revived a sense of my own manhood At the time of the Covey incident, he had reached the point at which I was not afraid to die, and that spirit made me a free man in fact. That's a really—yeah, I admire that so much because that's in some ways the best kind of honor is when it only comes internally. There's no external— reward for this but in this case it was just a matter of pure i'm willing to die for my self-respect and my liberty in the other cases they weren't at the risk of dying but they were but but courage was always the big trait that they needed to or or one might say consistency in their uh, (laughs) application of their beliefs that's what courage is in these cases is staying true to your principles at the risk of your own safety or well-being Kantians. So, <laughs> it's a little um, Kantian. So one of the things, though, that I found unsatisfying, not all honor systems are good like this. So she she right. mocks the, the culture of honor in the American South that led people to have duels. It was all show. She thinks it, like it was the mirror image of Frederick Douglass, who is no show and all honorable spirit in the Southern slave culture at the time honor was all show it was all just how you appeared to people and there was no internal trying to be worthy of how the esteem that do you believe that like what no i don't i actually don't you know it's a nice rhetorical move contrasting douglas with some of these posers these fronters essentially she was calling the southern slave owners like the jaw rules (laughs) of america but there is this way in which like if she had said well these people the american the the culture of honor in the south isn't actually honor then she would be making a claim that is at least interesting but she says that this is honor but it's not doesn't just one side of honor that those are two sides of honor the desire to be esteemed by the public and to have external rewards given to you because of your position within the society that's one part of honor the other part of honor is a fierce sense of self-respect and douglas had all of one and very little of the other although he did want to kick that slave owner's ass like he but this is what what I don't get, you know, if, if the account that she's trying to say is that honor has given rise to these moral heroes, but really what she's saying is that there are s- certain features that it's not honor per se, it's honor of this sort. 
So it's not. There's different aspects to honor. I think both of those aspects can be can serve good or ill depending on. Uh, and so, what are those features? Like, so I'm not convinced, for instance, that as she says over and over again, that ambition is part of honor. I actually think of ambition as that you can be very honorable and not desire control and power. It's it's not a necessary condition. But no, but it isn't a, even. But I, it isn't even in my whatever lay conception of honor. Like I wouldn't think to say to me like saying honor is intelligence or honor is willpower. Right. Well, it's because there's a more of an emphasis on a just personal achievement and b on recognition for individual achievement. That's one way of describing ambition, and those dispositions tend to be more prevalent in honor systems. I, I just wonder what the data is here, like to support the the claim. So one of the things that she said, and I mentioned this to you earlier, is that when she's talking about Martin Luther King, she says, you know, he was characterized by a deep humility. And this on the face of it is really seems inconsistent with honor. Wait, what? Humility is inconsistent with honor? Like I don't have that intuition at all and maybe it's because i was raised you know in by latin americans who value humility and not just posed humility but true humility but have a deep sense of talking about you drive around in those tricked out cars (laughs) tricked out cars (laughs) it's honorable humility i'm not saying that it is part of honor but it certainly doesn't seem inconsistent with honor to me and i think this is the same intuition that's giving me pause at accepting the claim that ambition yeah, is so I, central to honor you got to think of it and this is hard because you're such a philosopher and spirit this is a very vague messy concept personal ambition is something that is typical but it's not necessary for honor humility so is, is something it, that is probably uh, more rare a trait to be valued in honor cultures than in non-honor cultures. But, but you're overstate- actually making, but you're actually making some claims there. Like humility is less typical in honor cultures. But you realize that if you believe that humility isn't part of honor, then you would categorize a culture that values humility as not an honor culture. So to say no, that it is again, rare, you're, you're 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 breaking this down as if it's some it's evidence, like necessary not, and sufficient condition. No, not so at if all. They have like, enough have other a, traits that I associate with honor, but they also value humility. They might but they, still be you an associate honor. with honor. Like, why not ask people what they associate with honor? You're just getting away with like, well, Wait, a table is I a button. I have a you're, no. You're thing. actually. I'm just talking. It. I'm just sitting here, <laughs> just trying to have a beer. This <laughs> honorable, but you can't just rely on the fact that something doesn't have necessary and sufficient condition to justify making any claim that is just intuitive to you without actually supporting no, but, that intuition. But these are, okay, fine. But, but like, I, do I need to now present you with a ton of evidence that no i just want to know what the evidence iliad and the odyssey and but but do you realize what you're doing is that you have a conception of what is honor and then you are saying this is a a term like sport a broad category of traits and virtues and values and yeah i'm not saying that everybody else who uses that word in their different language also has that same conception i'm just saying that but, like, and she's just saying look we know what we mean when we're talking about but honor that's the thing. For i the don't know part. what she means like it's so unclear to me it's but like saying like i'm look, trying Tamler, to tell we you all and agree then you what's... yell at me for saying that 
You're Why trying to tell me with what authority do you tell me that? Like, with what, what authority do you tell me that that's the what honor means? The authority of having done a lot of research on, on what, honor and— But what from, is from that answer is what I'm saying. This is not, a, like, a fucking, like, necessary insufficient or anything like that. This is just a feature of life. Like, what you conceive to be honor actually will give rise to you interpreting things that are consistent with your definition as honor cultures. So— this Where is a species of criticism of all anthropology. You're always colored by your own conceptions. So no, you can it's, never... not, it's not what? that you're always colored. It's that there are ways to avoid being so biased. And one of those ways is to actually try to come up with a, a method to arrive at some – it can be a very loose conception – but what it can't be is just willy-nilly anything. Like, and it seems right. to me that this method— But why is it willy-nilly willy -nilly anything? It's I don't have any intuition that honor and ambition are linked. Fine, but, what, but, that's, but she doesn't have to satisfy all of your intuition. No, right? but she— You're accusing but why her of is... not having any conception of honor. But she no. does. It's just that you don't agree with her on certain— But features. how do we resolve that disagreement is what I'm asking. Well, it can't it can't be resolved. Like if you think like gymnastics isn't a sport because there's judges and I think it is a sport because they're great athletes, then we can't resolve that. So is then a, if you a, write a book on gymnastics saying like over and over again that it's not a sport. Why am I? You're not compelled to think that it's a sport. Well, so this is my criticism. Like, but, there but is here, nothing no, no, compelling. But what she's saying, but it's not. It's not a reasonable criticism because what she's saying is, here's what I'm calling honor. She a never says that. That, that, that she I never know she's says not it. actually doing that. But but, but the a charitable in. interpretation. <laughs> these traits, these kind of virtues, being overemphasized or more emphasized, ambition, uh, a willingness to stand up for yourself, courage. Courage, reverence for a principle. These things, I'm calling them honor. You don't have to call them honor if you don't want to, but I'm calling them honor. These are the things that have led to uh, major progressive moral reform in the United States over the last 200 years. It's the sloppiest kind of argument. Like it's the, it's it's so sloppy. It's how is that sloppy? It's it's neither doing conceptual analysis by actually trying to. Get She's even of the fuzziest to do definition, uh, uh, conceptual analysis. I go just, to the, you know what? There's positing. a lot of long literature on Gettier cases. If you want to do conceptual analysis, this is about like real, actual, no, ethical, listen, major democratic reform. This is what this is. So this is why it's sloppy. So it's neither. You didn't even let me finish. It's neither doing. Uh, it's neither attempting rigor of concept, nor is it attempting rigor of empirical support. So what she's done is she's cherry-picked, you know, five people who are these traditional heroes and lumped together what are sometimes opposite traits, calling them all honor and making an argument that this is what actually gives rise to reform. So what she hasn't done is said, like, was Malcolm X honorable? And if so, did the honor that he had actually give rise to change? So these are very cherry-picked examples. And cherry picked what, definition. What, so what? Like, I mean, you're not. I to be clear, you're not blaming her for not talking about every major 
figure in the history of American reform. No, if right? your claim is that honor played an important role right. in reform, what, like Malcolm he X, does X, not you might suffice. say yes. I think he was honorable. I think honor motivated him, and I think sometimes it motivated him to do good things, and sometimes it motivated him to do bad things. But he seems to have shared the same character traits that I'm celebrating in these other figures. What's the problem? She's making the problem is that she's making a causal claim and then ignoring all of the things that would be required to be evidence. It's pure conjecture. It's essentially like arguing like, you know what? Tall people have really been like the best reformers. And you just I just give you five examples of tall people who were like reformers. There's no attempt to causally link height. Well, I mean, if you can come up with counterexamples of people who didn't seem to have any of these, that's a totally legitimate way of responding. Peter Singer, um, I I take it that utilitarians don't generally fit the mold of... Yeah, he would not fit that that mold. But I think that he's done, you know, if you are actually concerned with animal rights, he's done a huge amount of reform, like that reform. So... This is just an easy counterexample. So, so what does again, that say? She's not making a. She's she's saying in a great number of cases, uh, but, in the majority okay. of cases, maybe the vast majority of cases. But what's her evidence? She just picked five people to talk about. What would you want her to do? Like what? Do you, like, like do you, actually like a, come up with a list of people who are critical for the reform movement. Generate a list of a hundred people who are integral to the reform, you know, of democracy and equal rights and all that stuff, and then actually go and find information, like say how they were described by their peers, like and have like an actual list of the traits, and then see if the honor traits actually appear more often. Right? It's the You're simplest, just giving like, somebody like a, a a PhD project. That's great. But because like, be, the reason it's a PhD project is because this is actually how to arrive at some no, sort of I, truth. I, I, I finally get what you're saying. If your claim is that honor has played a crucial role, and even though there are exceptions, if you're arguing that honor and honor values and the values that are associated with honor cultures have played this crucial role in major progressive reform within the United States or elsewhere, you need to do more than pick five examples exactly. that that's where that happens to be the case. Exactly. Exactly. Right? And I don't, uh, and she might be right. I just want something more. But you know, anyone who writes on honor is already on the defensive in the sense of, I just want to show you that this is even possible. The, the default position, and sometimes what this can possible? be to the detriment of the literature, the default position that they take themselves to be fighting against is that honor plays no role in any cases of bringing about the moral good. Right. And so they take themselves to be providing counterexamples to that. And actually, you know, Appiah is like this too. I mean, he definitely cherry picks his cases and his are, you know, the ending of foot binding in China, um, the abolitionist movement in England. The idea is that you think these honor values are only responsible for blood feuds and honor killings and Stupid cycles duels. of violence and duels, yeah, and little and French people slapping each other with white gloves and. <laughs> 
but actually they have played this major positive role in many cases and you should recognize that you got to recognize I feel that. I'm actually sympathetic to that view as is probably evident from our previous episodes yeah. it's just that if that's what you want to do I mean it's one thing it is two different claims like one is the claim that honor is always harmful five examples actually might be sufficient to defeat the claim that honor is always harmful but it's not sufficient to provide positive evidence that honor is integral and i think that the way to fight that fight is would be to like do you know something like the what i outlined it's not i don't think it's yeah the hurdle is i mean the the odd peter singer here or there would not harm the the thesis but if a lot of people that we consider that we all agree are our moral heroes turn out to be more like peter singer or to not share the traits that people commonly associate with honor values and honor virtues then that would be a problem for the thesis right i took these to be great illustrations of how how honor can work magic really working for the good of for some major piece of moral progress now you go out there and you think about these other heroes that you admire check to see if there aren't the if they don't share these traits <laughs> like too. Mike, so, Mike Tyson is there? <laughs> well yeah I mean that's the separate the... question is, <laughs> is is it you know all things considered has it brought more good or ill to the world right you know it's I I'm, I'm obviously betraying my views on what constitutes evidence, but I think that one great way to do it, and I think it's quite plausible that, that there would be a lot of evidence, is to actually do something more systematic. I, I don't want to come across as if I'm saying that this paper is worthless. Actually, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff. It, maybe it's because I never doubted it that this is unconvincing to me, right? Because I was already on the side that, like, sure, honor is, is important and it's... And so I actually focused on the, wanted more. the rigor. Yeah, I wanted more. Like I wanted, because I, it seems like there's so much that could be done. But but yeah, I, I found the the illustrations really interesting, and I I I didn't know that much about Susan B. Anthony or or Elizabeth, Elizabeth Stanton. Stand, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, that that whole thing. And what's interesting about them and her description of them, and then we should wrap up and talk about moral saints, but a lot of times when you talk about women in honor cultures and women embracing (laughs) honor values, they are doing it in different ways than the men are. So they're, they're part of transmitting the honor norms to the children. They sort of rile up the men to go into battle. They're In their cases, they were exhibiting exactly the same traits that the men that she was discussing right and she has exhibiting. a she has a very nice discussion of like it's that it's a mistake to think of of these traits as male traits about that courage I, and standing up for yourself yep. and, and not being afraid and uh, and not being a coward yeah you know yeah it's not that they it's not that their traits were masculine it's that traits of honor could surprisingly in ha- <laughs> be found in women. I realized that I had some tacit association between honor and, and male. And well, just that it, idea it, of not being a coward, not 
punking out, not right. you just associate that that is more associated with men than women. But those and we, are exactly the the kind of values that they were appealing to, uh, both for embracing themselves and also um, trying to instigate in others. All right, so let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about what I think we both agree is not a conception of moral heroism that we would want to embrace, which is the moral saint as Susan Wolf defines it. So we'll talk about that after a short break. Back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, so we're going to shift focus now to talk about uh, Susan Wolf's paper, Moral Saints. But before we do that, we wanted to uh, say a few things. First, as usual, thank you all for the support. We really appreciate it. Um, the Amazon purchases, uh, the uh, iTunes reviews, the PayPal donations. We're really thankful. Please, you can go to our verybadwizards.com page and click on support. The Tumblr, we haven't talked about the, the Tumblr page that much. I was just on it last night and I'm just flabbergasted at, at Matt Welch's creativity. Um, that is the real gem that came out of the podcast, as, as we've said before. Yeah. This is uh, is actually like going to be, it's probably going to live on longer than our episodes because no one wants to sit through like an hour and a half of like... <laughs> your ambient ramblings. Yeah, my ambient ramblings. No. And, and Matt also runs our at Very Bad Wizards Twitter. We check it, but he usually is the one that's replying. You can also right. tweet either of us at, at Pease or at Tamler. Um, but yeah, we want to thank Matt and we want to have Matt on. We want to. Yeah. Speaking of moral heroes, what motivates <laughs> Matt? volunteerism for a good cause it's it's mainly pity yeah i think it's pity and compassion because <laughs> i don't think you could call it this podcast a good cause uh, no it's uh this will get us right into the susan wolf paper uh she distinguishes between two kinds of first define what a moral saint is let's do it all i wanted to say was that i wondered if matt was a loving saint or a rational saint oh, okay. uh, whether he's doing it sort of despite all of the pain and discomfort through some principled reason or what principled reason could there be? <laughs> so no moral i'm very principle. curious about the, the content <laughs> of that principle <laughs> <laughs> um, so okay so moral saints i want to start out by saying this is one of the best opening lines <laughs> in a philosophy paper that i've read i don't know whether there are any moral saints but if there are i am glad that neither i nor those about whom i care most are among them <laughs> yeah it's she right away is such a great writer that's just Something to be celebrated in philosophy is just somebody who's just a beautiful writer, not just clear, which is itself, you know, not a given, but also actually like really eloquent and funny and right. just and lively and full of verve and 
I, I, I love her writing. And not falling into the jargon. Um, Everyone should just have to read this paper as a model of how of how you should write. But let's let's talk about what she's her position. This is ultimately a critique of a certain conception of ethical theory as a an encompassing guide for how to live. Yeah, and, and but but she she points out when you say ethical theory, it's important to note that she even means just lay conceptions of morality, right? But I, I think she has in mind like act-based moral theories, like utilitarianism and Kantianism and Well, and, she discusses them, but she act, but she actually makes it clear that this papers. is not a critique of Kantianism or utilitarianism um as theories, but rather that co- the common thing that they have in them that probably comes from everybody's lay conception. But my point in saying that it's act-based theories that are her target is that I think what's very consistent with her ultimate conclusion here is a kind of virtue, character-based conception of <laughs> ethics. And what is inconsistent with her view is the idea that you know, let's say you, you're a utilitarian. The best kind of person is the person who's going to be closest to c- performing the utilitarian action the highest percentage of the time. Well, okay, I'm trying to find the quote, but but I think that actually she says that virtue theory has a problem too, right? Because unless you have a a good way of valuing non-moral characteristics, you will fall prey to this problem. That is the the criticism of of moral sainthood and what what you know as as a guide for how you ought to live your life is a problem across most ethical theories that hold that don't no, no, actually but, but that's but that's i i don't think she says that and in any case if she does then it would be a mistake because like you know think of aristotle some of his virtues were moral but other of the of them had nothing to do with morality having like a deep voice and walking with a proper gait clearly things that are outside of morality yeah but 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 the point that she is making though is that what's unclear on these theories is under uh, so when should the the moral view there is no explicit attempt to say well non-moral virtues should trump moral virtues. All right, but let's back up. So let's say um, the kind of moral saint you're dealing with is the utilitarian. And so the utilitarian moral saint would be the person who always performs at every opportunity the act that will bring about the greatest sum total of happiness in the universe. The problem with that according to Susan Wolf, why you wouldn't want to hang out with one of those moral <laughs> saints, even if they existed, is that there's so many other parts of what makes a person interesting and a good person that don't involve acting towards the greatest interests of of humanity. And in fact, there are certain features, and this gets back to what we were saying maybe at the beginning of the of the podcast of why it's so hard to think of moral heroes in movies. There are certain aspects of what characters and lives and people that we find compelling that um, are inconsistent with them behaving in the, the the optimal way, according to utilitarian moral theory, at every point, just developing you know the abilities to be a great chef, a, a great tennis player, or somebody who 
can write a piano concerto or they could never spend the time to develop these non-moral virtues if they were constantly trying to do the utilitarian thing right and and your duty as a utilitarian is is it, it is always the case that anything that you do for the benefit of your own non-moral development to do to do this podcast to become a good violinist to whatever like that you're always doing the wrong thing because you're you are foregoing all of the good that that you could be doing so this uh, utilitarianism is is an easy target here but she then goes on to say that it's not just about utilitarianism right it's Kantianism falls prey to the very same i know like hits you where you live Uh, there's actually like a pretty rich discussion of the problems with Kantianism. Um, But, but at the end of the day, it's your duty to, to, you know, be guided by moral principles above any other thing. Right. Right. And so this leads to also very boring, uh, in fact, inconsistent with what we say is valuable, like in all of these other domains, like, what makes you interesting? What makes life worth living? What makes a good life? Like what, what you would actually count as that person lived a good life. Now, you can quibble with some of the things that she says that moral saints won't be able to do. I was yeah. wondering what you thought about. Like they won't be able to laugh at the Marx Brothers. Yeah, I actually I, I thought this was a weird this was a weird criticism. Like she's like, you know, you can't if you're a moral saint, you can't have a sense of humor. And I didn't quite understand why she would say that. So, well, so what she says was, a moral saint, on the other hand, has reason to take an attitude in opposition to this sarcastic, cynical kind of wit. He should try to look for the best in people, give them the benefit of the doubt as long as possible, try to improve regrettable situations as long as there is any hope of success. This suggests that although a moral saint might well enjoy a good episode of Father's Knows Best, (laughs) he may not, in good conscience, be able to laugh at a Marx Brothers movie or enjoy a play by George Bernard Shaw. Now... If you're looking to nitpick with this paper, I don't see why moral saints I, – I don't see how that follows. I don't see how laughing at the Marx Brothers yeah. and, I, and, and you know, Pygmalion, no arms in the man, is inconsistent with are those George Bernard? Are those George Bernard Shaw plays? Yeah. <laughs> Um, sorry, I forgot. I, yeah, I thought I was talking sorry. to an educator. I, I do know what Father Knows Best is, though. So, um, <laughs> I actually, like, it sounds... I mean, I, I can picture it without knowing what it is. One of those, like, 60s totally. sitcoms. And it was on Nick at Night all the time, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so so I guess, I, I suppose that in, that in that you could be using that time, like, you're not morally edifying yourself, um, you know. So. But that's not her point. It's not that you're spending the time watching it because she says you can enjoy Father Knows Best the same amount of time. It's more that 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 your personality was a moral saint that it would be like I can't tell if it's an empirical claim or if it's a conceptual claim. It almost seems like she's confusing prudishness with with moral sainthood and but the, the charitable way might be that she's saying it's not it's more like a contingent claim where it's like the, the the kind of values you would have cultivated would make it impossible for you to 
appreciate the humor or very unlikely. You'd be very unlikely to appreciate the humor in these kinds right. of things because people are suffering and you're so opposed to people suffering that you can't. Right. I remember actually this is people arguing because I, I take it that, that that is what she's saying or at least that our lay conception of what a perfectly moral person is would not be one who laughs at frivolous, stupid or offensive jokes. But uh, I do remember actually hearing people argue about whether or not Jesus ever laughed. And really? Yeah. And it, the uh, the argument was always like, no, how could he laugh when like there was so much important shit like that he had to focus on? It's sort of like angels dancing on the head of a pin kind of argument, but it really betrayed what people thought of as being perfectly moral. And but but I use that to illustrate that I never thought that to be perfectly moral, you couldn't laugh. I'm like the laughing Buddha. The conclusion of the first part of the essay is there seems to be a limit to how much morality we can stand. Right. And I think she's absolutely right about that, right? This yeah. is, and, and maybe this is a condemnation of just normal human nature and human beings, but there's something about this person who only cares about morality that gets on your nerves. Yeah. And so the way that she seems to frame it is that this is, it, it, you're tempted to conclude that there is something wrong. We, there must be something wrong with our conception of morality because uh, we tend to believe that all things being equal, you ought to be as moral as you can possibly can be. And but what that leads to is sort of it's a reductio kind of it's like it seems like we're being inco incoherent if doing what we think everybody ought to do leads to people that we actually find to be disdainful or just not to be celebrated. Right. We... But OK. But then she says. That this is is not something that is truly paradoxical. There's a way out of it, right? Um, I mean, I don't think she thinks there's. It's not paradoxical. You just have to. So now the issue is okay. So we have these moral values, but then there's also all these non-moral values. Paul Newman's cool, you know, Natasha right. Rostov's passionate exuberance, or whatever she says. She's a character in Tolstoy's War and Peace. This is one of those articles that sort of reward the reader for understanding her for, references. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes the right thing to do is to pursue the non-moral value. And sometimes the right thing to do is pursue the moral value. And she doesn't think there's any hope of finding some meta theory that will tell you when to do the moral thing and when to do the non-moral but still valuable thing. That's not going to happen. We just have to sort of use our intuitions on a case-by-case -case basis in terms of what this intuitionism is. She says, it is a form of intuitionism which is not intended to take the place of more rigorous, systematically developed moral theories. Rather, it is intended to put these more rigorous and systematic moral theories in their place. Right. That's great. It's a mistake to think that moral values ought to trump all values. This doesn't follow. She says, if moral philosophers are to address themselves at the most basic level to the question of how people should live, however, they must do more than adjust the content of their moral theories in ways that leave room for the affirmation of non-moral values. 
they must examine explicitly the range and nature of these non-moral values, and in light of of this examination, they must ask how the acceptance of a moral theory is to be understood and and acted upon. For the claims of these papers do not much conflict with the content of any particular currently popular moral theory as they call into question a metamoral assumption that implicitly surrounds discussions of moral theory more generally. Specifically, they call into question the assumption that it is always better to be morally better. Exactly. Yeah. And, and and she admits that it's, it, as you said earlier, that it's hard to come up with some meta theory that, that weights these values. But right, And that you shouldn't even try. I mean, I think her point, I like to think her point, and I belief in my heart that it's her point that you shouldn't try to come up with a theory uh, uh, because it's not happening right it's not going to happen like you said she embraces some intuitionism here which i think is perfectly reasonable it at least gives me an out from like from all of the things that (laughs) that when i read this paper i realize like yeah you know this is like whether i embrace like i'm i'm tempted by deontology and consequentialism and both of them make me feel guilty as shit um, That's and then, your Christian. This is yeah, maybe. <laughs> oh, says the Jew. <laughs> As I tell my class, Hebrew has twelve words for guilt. Um, <laughs> it's, it's not true. Um, Eskimos though do <laughs> eleven words for snow. Right. It's a great paper. I will post both of these papers. Wait, I, but but this is. Can I read one sentence that yeah. I love? This is again on the topic we're discussing. The philosophical temperament will naturally incline at this point towards asking what then is at the top or if there is no top how are we to decide when and how much to be moral in other words there is a temptation to seek a metamoral though not in the standard sense meta-ethical theory that will give us principles or at least informal directives on the basis of which we can develop and evaluate more comprehensive personal ideals so she's saying like maybe there's a theory that can tell us okay be moral here this percentage of the time, but not right. this percentage of the time when the moral stakes are this high, you know, like there's some overarching theory that can tell us. And she does say she's pessimistic about the chances of such a theory to lead, to yield substantial and satisfying results. And she's so like, that's so right about as a diagnosis of the philosophical temperament yeah. and your temperament. And, yeah. the, well, the, I and laugh. also as like I think she's right in her pessimism that that's a fruitful way to approach this problem. But what she wouldn't do is endorse the spurious, willy-nilly, unjustified, loose connections that you make <laughs> as a result of this conclusion. I'm sure she wouldn't. She, yeah, this is a, the probably the rare paper in which we both have equal love for for it because I I view it as a nice conceptual piece of work that then concludes something that you probably value, which is like, come on, dude, don't like, don't think that yeah. embrace yeah. the messiness, embrace the sloppiness. <laughs> is that what you tell your wife for? <laughs> um, <laughs> on, on that note, on, on that note, it's- join us next time. We may do an email episode. We've got a ton of good emails, really substantive emails. So, so keep emailing us. The Josh Green thing. We said he was coming on. <laughs> he clearly, we, clearly, he's bound by some morality that uh, as, a, as a utilitarian. <laughs> uh, he's yeah, the, the, the utilitarian calculus has yielded an output that 
it's going to be as difficult as possible to set up a time. Sam, a lot of people are bugging us about Sam Harris, but uh, you know he's he's a busy guy. He just wrote like a best selling book on yeah on on, on spirituality. Um, yeah, but we'll do our best. We will. Do I would love best. to have him to have him on. You know him, right? Yeah, yeah, he would be great. And yeah. he hates me, but that's okay. Well, you know. Yes, reasons. Good judge. Good judge. All right. Yeah. So we'll see you next time.